Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92 about the importance of stories. I'm Jan Hansen here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio at 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and in-studio audience, and to come and be a part of this local independent community radio station here in New Hampshire. We have six storytellers tonight on the theme of letting go. Our underwriters for tonight are Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tale Radio, and who is curious to know, hey, what's your story? And, including myself, uh, Jan Hansen, because I believe in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the South Coast, Seacoast rather. Here is how our show will progress tonight. You will be hearing six storytellers, all local folks who bring us a true story from their lives. We limit everyone to 10 minutes for their, st- for their telling. We don't have a rating system or voting, no judgment or grading, just plain storytelling. We want all of our Seaf Coast community and beyond to have the opportunity to come in and share their true stories. I now pass the mic to our guest MC, Kathy Maloney, to introduce each storyteller. Kathy? Thanks, Jan. And I have the pleasure of introducing our first storyteller for tonight, Emily Spaulding. This is Emily's second outing here at True Tales. And she says she's already hooked. A little about Emily. She went to college on a baton twirling scholarship. Didn't know they had those. (laughs) Along the way to earning an MBA. That makes sense. Um, She now lives with her husband in Newcastle and is working on a memoir called Off the Turnip Truck and Into the Traffic. Sounds interesting. As a lead into tonight's story, Emily wants us to know that she was born under the sign of Scorpio which is in November, whose traits include loyal, vindictive, and gets even no matter how long it takes. With her auspicious planetary alignment, how will she let go of her grudges? She ponders some possible ways in her story, Grudge Riddance Remedies. Emily? Thank you. I take on grudges as if they were hitchhikers and they won't get out of the car. For instance, my smiley brother, Alan, he always tells me he's going to do something for me, but he never gets around to it. He said that he would pick out our mother's grave marker, but he never got around to it. And then I could hear a story, her voice saying to me, her spirit, Toots, after all I did for you, don't you kids care? So I'm going to be picking out the marker and what I call an Allen grudge. And then there's my husband, Dick, who I adore, except when he breaks in, when I'm telling a story to our guests. I'm in a crescendo like a Southern Baptist member and I minister, minister. And I say, there must have been 50 people at that rally. 
Dick interrupts and says, with authority, Actually, I counted, and there were only 48. (laughs) It has happened more than once, and so I took on a husband grudge. I have a friend, Spike, and he can talk for a half an hour without taking a breath, and he gets very upset if I interrupt him, and I don't have a half an hour to wait, and so I take on a Spike grudge. But then I had a eureka moment. I was reading magazines while waiting and waiting and waiting in the doctor's office. And I finally got to the last magazine. It was called Horoscopes. So I thumbed through to find out what my Scorpio traits were, what my sign was. And it said, as she mentioned earlier, Scorpios are loyal to a fault. That's me. But Scorpios invented the word vindictive. Uh-oh, that's also me. Scorpios get even, no matter how long it takes. Ah, oh, that is definitely me. But now I understood that grudges were not a flaw in my personal character, but they were just something that was up in the stars or maybe in the alignment of the planets. I knew that now I could work on getting rid of my grudges. I started with my brother, Alan Grudge, and I wrote a story. He wouldn't like to, I haven't let him read it, on not falling through on anything. And I put that story and the grudge in the bottom of my desk and I shut the door. And then I thought, to get rid of the grudge with my husband who interrupts my stories, I need to talk to him about how that makes me feel. Maybe I need to talk really loudly. And then I thought about two ancient women that we met when we were hiking in Italy. They woke us one Sunday morning with their yelling and screaming and gesturing, getting ready to kill each other right outside our window. It was over a grudge, but only they knew what it was about. And then as often happens in Italy, there were church bells ringing all over the place. And they, the two women stopped their grudges sitting on the and left them on the bench they kissed each other on both cheeks and said arrivederci arrivederci and they headed off in different directions so i used the italian woman technique with my husband and we talked really loud i think as loud as those women and maybe at one point we were ready to kill each other but finally he said I won't interrupt your stories anymore. And he hasn't. And for for Spike, I have a trouble with Spike. I think I need to have him change his name. For Spike, who talks forever and doesn't stop and keeps going, I asked my friend John for some advice. And he said, taking on a grudge is like drinking poison drinking poison and hoping that the other person dies. 
A grudge does feel like poison to me. It makes my stomach hurt. So I decided I would let go of the spike grudge. Now that I know how to let go of grudges, I have more room in my heart to follow my aspirations, one of it which is to become mindful, to be present in all situations, calm, cool, and collected. But I am still a Scorpio, so only time will tell if I've really let go. Thanks, Emily. Next, we welcome Jim Ryan uh, to his first venture on True Tales Radio. Jim lives in Merrimack, Massachusetts, and works as a training and development manager for a major healthcare organization, as I well know, because I've had the good fortune to work with Jim recently. He's also an adjunct professor. Off the payroll, he is a rock climber and mountaineer and has a lovely 14-year-old daughter. The story Jim is about to tell us called Cratered, is about how an accident he had four years ago helped him to let go of some beliefs he once thought were essential, but now realizes are laughable. Jim? So when I came to, I was laying on my back, and I was looking up at a gray-brown cliff and I had no idea how I got there, and I had no idea what happened. I must have moved because a bolt of pain went through my body like I've never felt before, and I must have yelled out because uh, I realized then there was somebody actually holding my head and telling me not to move. Um, I could tell there was somebody to the right of me that was really distressed and saying, I'm sorry, I let you go, I dropped you. And there was somebody else at the, my feet that was telling me that they call the paramedics and they're coming and you'll be okay. And I was scared because I had no idea what happened. What had happened was I was rock climbing with a good friend of mine, something I'd been doing for 30 years. And we were climbing in central Massachusetts on a climb called Tarzan. And uh, my friend, my partner, who had gotten up to the top, he had summited and he was blaming me. He was blaming me up and I was following him. And I got to a, the difficult section and I fell. Um, but the rope caught me and I only fell a couple feet. Um, in, in rock climbing, we use ropes and the protection uh, devices and practice and techniques to keep us from hitting the ground. And uh, in that case, I just fell a couple feet, and I, but I swung out to the left, and I couldn't get back on the climb. And I told my partner that I couldn't see, that I had to be let down. He yelled down to me that uh, the device he was using had jammed, and they was trying to free it. And what had happened was when he freed it, the rope came undone, and I fell 25 feet, and I hit the ground. Well, I was waiting for the paramex to show up, the one of the people that was helping one of the first responders asked me if they should call Ann. And I said, okay. And then I was like, who's Ann? And I realized 
I didn't know who Ann was. I didn't know anything. I couldn't remember anybody or anything that had happened to me up to that point. And um, I kind of feel bad about now, but I was remembering, I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm married, but I really hope that I'm not married. <laughs> and, um, the paramedics showed up and they told me that they were going to, uh, needed to put me on this backboard to transport me out and they said it might hurt. And while they were doing that, somebody started screaming. And I said, wow, this is really inappropriate time for somebody to be screaming until I realized it was me. Um, when I got on the backboard, uh, they were carrying me out. And there's a bunch of great people who had been there to help rescue me and get me out. Um, and I realized at some point that on the way out that I was going to be okay. But I just couldn't remember anything. I couldn't remember anything. And I was going through files in a file cabinet that it was just blank and I was looking and I was looking like what you know and I finally finally something came to me like a bolt and I remembered three months from now I'm probably going to lose my job and I said really this is the first thing I have to remember after like the day I had that I'm going to lose my job in a few months anyway uh, they got me to the hospital and um, that's another story about what it's like to be strapped to a backboard naked for eight hours. And um, I made a full recovery and um, went back to rock climbing. And it's been five years since the accident. And I went back last week, actually, to go climbing in that area. And I walked over to where I fell and I looked around and I realized where I landed was the only flat piece of ground there. And... When you hit the ground, rock climbing is a rear event, and we call it cratering. And uh, it doesn't happen too often, luckily, obviously. And um, for me, I just happened to land in the one area that had no boulders. And if I fall to the left or the right, I probably would have had a much different outcome. And it reminded me of something I, th I think about the accident often in the last five years. And it just reinforced something that I already knew was that um, the lessons that I learned from that was that I had, um, you know, that life doesn't go on forever and that uh, to hold on to stuff like that is really not self-serving and that, you know, your health and your job and your relationships all end at some point. And um, letting go of that was really freeing for me and it was a great lesson. And, you know, being let go that time for me was helped teach me to let go. Thank you. The time is 6.57 and you are listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio Broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I am your announcer, Jan Hansen, and now to introduce our next storytellers, here is our MC, Kathy Maloney. Thank you. Next up is Brian Gregg. Brian's a resident of Kittery, right across the bridge from here in the great state of Maine. He has worked in a variety of professions as a landscaper, lawyer, and journalist, and insists he is not having a midlife crisis. Tonight, Brian will share a story entitled, Out of the Heart of Darkness, about the time he went hiking in Bosnia, 
and thought he had ended up in a minefield. With that ominous lead-in, let's hear from Brian. So I'm hiking in the hills around Sarajevo, um, and I'm going up past the, uh, on the left and to the right of me on this path, there's caution tape. It's red. It's in many languages, and it says, danger, mines. It has a skull and crossbones. And so I'm walking through, and the path is reasonably sized to start. It gets narrower. I keep going. I go up through the hills. I'm walking. I didn't have a plan. I just wanted to get out of town. And I kept going, and it, the path got sort of narrower and narrower. And, but eventually it opened up a little bit, and I'm in some fields. And I had read about how people were having their uh, uh, limbs well, their legs or feet blown off from time to time then in Bosnia. And um, I was aware of that. And the, the, eventually I came into an abandoned village. At a village that the houses had no roofs, the, no windows. There's nothing there. Perhaps it had been ethnically cleansed. Or perhaps the people who had lived there had abandoned it out of safety and fled to another place. The enemy would have ejected them one way or the other. And... Once I got through that village, and as the, the sun was setting in the hills, I realized it was November. Uh, it happened to be a crazy warm day, and now it was getting cold. The chill was setting in, and as I got out of the village, the path that I was on ended. And I'm in a field. I'm standing in a field. I'm looking back behind me. There's the abandoned village, and ahead of me is just a field. I had no idea where the path was or if there was a path or if the field ahead of me had mines. And I stood there and I thought, I don't want to take a step forward. I don't want to take, I could go back, but it's going to take me, you know, three hours to get to town. I'll be walking in, in the dark. And I thought, I don't have any idea what to do. Shall I move forward, move back, frozen? And then I heard a cowbell. Ding, ding. I thought, what is going on? And I look, I take, actually decided to go forward, take a few steps forward, and I see a couple of cows. And I'm thinking, all right, well, th this is a field. These are cows. They still have their feet, their legs. I'm going to just walk through the field. So I kept going, and then sure enough, there were some humans that were tending to the cows, two guys just, just there. And I thought, all right, this is great. Uh, and I went up to talk with them, and I... They were, they were Serbs. This was Bosnia. The Serbs, as you may remember, it was thought, you know, the Serbs, went and uh, surrounded the town of Sarajevo and held them hostage. And uh, they were shelling citizens and taking sniper shots of people going to get food from the markets and all of that. The Serbs, in other words, were, according to this story, the enemy. And I realized these guys were Serbs. And I thought, I can't talk to these guys. They're the enemy. But I realized I needed help getting off this mountain. I needed to know where to go at this point because they were still in the middle of nowhere. So my halting Serbo-Croatian, I find out where it is that I needed to go. I thought, okay, all right, these guys, they may sort of look like the enemy, but they're actually friends. And they'll tell me how to get down the mountain. I went down the mountain, crawled, you know, went down the path and um, got, back to, uh, got back to Sarajevo. And then I'm just going to fast forward a few years later. I'm thinking about how does it... A, people could come to fight each other, how it is that families could come to 
even take up arms against one another and how a, a once proud country, multi-ethnic pluralistic society, relatively prosperous, could come completely crashing down. I decided it could never happen here. And then I thought, well, maybe it could happen here. And I decided to write a fictional story. And I spent about seven years researching and writing. And, um, and I finally came to the conclusion this story was, was dark. It was way too dark for me. I needed to tell a, a lighter, gentler version of the story. And uh, so I started working on one that was inspired by the people of Serbia who overcame their legacy of violence and oppression and overthrew the government uh, peacefully. And this movement was led by name, well, it was led by many, but one of the key players was a man named Ivan Marovic. Ivan Marovic, the charismatic young fellow who inspired people to take to the streets and raise up their fists and have slogans and get rid of the butcher of the Balkans, Slobodan Milosevic. And so Serbia transformed itself without means, without needing to resort to uh, civil war. And that was great. I thought, okay, Ivan Marovic is my man. I came home, I started working on a story. It was huge. It was World War III. And I thought, oh, that's too crazy. I'm going to make it local. And it's like New Essex was New Hampshire. And it's like, what would that take? And peaceful transformation, like Ivan Marovic style. I thought, yeah, Ivan's my man. And I was working on this project for seven years. It was my baby. And then finally, I realized this is way over the top. I'm never going to make it into the book, never going to make it into a movie. And I, and I talked to a man named John Lovering, who runs the uh, audio theater program on Portsmouth Community Radio. And I said, John, I've got a story. He said, great. Started working on it. I realized even my peaceful version was too dark. To, to, to propose a solution to a problem, you've got to present the problem. The problem was way too dark. I found myself hiking in the hills in Canada doing research for this story, and I started thinking that the land around me was mine, and I thought, okay, uh, this is not good. And I thought, but I'm in Canada, everything's cool. And I, I got out of the woods and I saw a car coming. I'm like, are they the enemy? No, they're not the enemy, they're Canadians. I thought, good, good, okay, what's wrong with this picture? Even that story's too dark. Came home and said, John, I can't do it, it's, it's, it's too dark. And so I took a break, took a break from news, gave up news, let go of news. I was a news junkie, I was a purveyor, I was a manufacturer. I wasn't going to do news anymore. News was bad, news was negative, news was making me crazy. So I gave it up, and I gave it up, and I was so much better. My wife said I was so much happier, I was loving, I was peaceful, I was transformed. And then the election of 2014 came, and I was like, I gotta learn who's in power. Who's fighting who? Who's gonna come out on top? It's a war fought by other means, it's politics. I thought I'd better learn about the news. And I went back into it and I became a dark man once again. I was that jerk, that grumpy old curmudgeon that my wife was sick. Well, one point there was a man she loved and then I became this grumpy man again. And I said, okay, I'm gonna give up news again. I had to go through the withdrawal symptoms and it was just dreadful. And then eventually, and then I got peaceful, I got awesome. I was like, yeah, man, I'm wow, great. Ohm, and I go to California, go to a meditation retreat, sitting in a hot tub. I'm in the hot, sulfur hot springs, a nice bath with other people. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not saying a word. It's dark. There are no lights. There are the stars. It's the Pacific. It's sulfur hot springs, 120 degrees coming out of the earth and into our bodies. That was good. And I thought, this is awesome. And I'm saying nothing. And there are these people in this tub. And they're talking about political transformation in the United States, peaceful revolution, popular revolt, just like they had in Serbia. In fact, this guy was saying, I never saw his face, but I heard him saying, yeah, and so we're working on this project in L.A., and um, yeah, yeah, you know, my friend Ivan Marovic, you know, we're working together, we're getting stuff going. I thought, Ivan Marovic, Ivan Marovic is my man. 
And I'm thinking, I'm not going to tell this story. It's way too freaking dark. But this guy, he lives in L.A. He can get a movie made. He's, he's got friends. He's creative. He's going to run a 50-mile barefoot marathon. He's not even 30. And he knows Ivan Marovich. <laughs> awesome. And I, and I had to I had to say, okay, my baby, I worked for my baby for seven years. And it was all about something. I didn't even know what, but it was personally transformative. And I had to do it. And I thought, I can't give up my baby. But he knows Ivan Marovich. I was like, hey, uh. I've got an idea for a, for, a, for a movie for you. He's like, yeah, I told him about my idea for a movie. Make a movie out of the movement you're trying to topple the 1%, trying to transform the United States, trying to make a better world. Make a movie out of it. He's like, that is a great idea. I'm like, thank you. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Just take, take, take my baby. Tell Ivan and, and make a movie. I have no idea if he ever spoke to Ivan Marovich. I was able to let go of my baby, and I'll just say I was in the sulfur hot springs. I was taking a bath, and yeah, I, I think I let go of my baby and sort of tossed out the baby with the bath water. <laughs> it's the best thing I ever did. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. So you're healed now, Ryan. So next we hear from Betty Tamposi. Betty is a New Hampshire girl, born and bred in Nashua. She is mom to three adult children and has had a varied career in business, government, which we're going to hear a story from that realm shortly, and as well as um, being on the, a member of many boards. Betty is trained as a chaplain and now works in academia as a PhD candidate. The title of Betty's story, Taking the Knife Out, could conjure a number of images a surgeon doing her work, a chef cutting vegetables, or a more uh, evil use of a knife. Betty's story is set in Pakistan, where she served for the State Department. Her tale relates to how Pakistani law uses knives to chop off human hands as punishment for stealing. Betty? Thank you. Actually, I worked in Washington, D.C., but uh, my job was I was responsible for our consulates in, uh, in Pakistan. And this story occurred as I was sitting on the sixth floor of the U.S. State Department in Washington, D.C., which happens to be in a section of Washington called Foggy Bottom. And in Washington... Everything is measured, quite tediously actually, by how close you are to the center of power. Uh, in my case, there are seven floors in the State Department, and my office was on the sixth floor. So I had some responsibility. We had 243 consulates around the world, and every day there was some instance of an American or Americans that live or travel overseas that need the help of the United States government. And it's the consulates uh, to where Americans will go. And that's where our consular officers advocate and, and, and assist Americans that are in trouble or need help. So as it turns out, I was sitting at my desk and I got a message uh, from two moms of two teenage boys uh, who had been traveling in Pakistan. And... Their message was an urgent message. They were asked me what I could do in using my position 
to help prevent their sons from having their hands chopped off. They had been in an open market in Lahore, and they were apprehended, and their punishment was going to have to be to have their hands cut off. How on earth does anyone do that to another human being, is what my first thought was. How do they actually do this? Uh, I cringed at the thought, and I also was mindful that in the United States uh, and throughout the world, we have um, something known as, as, as sovereign powers. Sovereign countries have uh, laws uh, that dictate how it is that they're going to judicially um, be disposed towards any kinds of infractions that happen within their country. They have full discretion over any American that travels into any country, they can do what they want with that American. And our government, the United States government, has very little that it can do except for through the power of persuasion, perhaps to ask them to reconsider. So in this case, I sprang immediately into action and called the Pakistani ambassador. Now, I told him that I knew that he knew every judge in his country and that if there was some way that he could think of something else to do with these young boys other than taking their limbs off, I was asking him to consider it. Throughout the conversation, he repeatedly invoked the sovereign, the notion of sovereignty and sovereign law. And I, unfortunately, was not very persuasive with him. So after a while in the conversation, I decided to switch gears, try something else. In this case, I was thinking, maybe I could get us both to a place in the conversation where we could begin to imagine together what it would be like for this to happen to any human being. So I began to tell him that my government needed to know who the surgeon was going to be, at what hospital was this going to take place, what kind of anesthesia were they going to administer to these two young, young boys. There was a long pause in the conversation after I asked these questions. I didn't want to be the first one to say something after the long pause. And he said to me, I'll call you tomorrow. The next day, I waited anxiously all morning for this call, wondering what it was he was going to do. So he did call me, and I was relieved to know that the boy's limbs were going to be spared. That was vitally important to me, that these boy's limbs would be spared. They were going to come up with another form of punishment that was nowhere near as brutal or violent. And I was grateful to this ambassador that he was creative enough to respect the laws of his country and still be able to spare the, the limbs.
Now, I also know that a lot of time has passed since that time that I was in Washington thinking about what is a morally superior position when it comes to punishment, appreciating that in our country we have constitutional rights that prevent cruel and unusual punishment. And I actually was uh, thinking about that a lot and appreciating that we in this country enjoy due process, rule of law, constitutional rights that other countries don't always enjoy as we do. But then came Abu Ghraib. And as I thought about Abu Ghraib, I thought about the Muslim mothers who no doubt had gone to many consulates in the Middle East, pleading for the mercy for their sons to be spared the torture, only to be turned away. But what's redeeming if anything, about the situation, is that in this country, there was, across the board, outrage when the memos of torture became public. And that is the greatness of this country, that we don't take this lightly. We don't take torture lightly. Now, as we all know, in the dinner conversations that we have in our homes about issues of national importance and international importance that we often, sometimes, not often, I try not to, to dwell too much on it because it's a tough subject, but from time to time at my dinner table conversation, we will talk about the use of torture. And those that advocate for it are not looking at this as contempt for human life. That's not it at all. They talk about it in, in terms of national security. And sometimes there is an element of persuasion, even just a little bit of persuasion, that they invoke that gets my attention. But I am no longer a public servant and no longer having to deal with the practical application of what it is that we do for national security. I'm a theologian now. And I can say clearly, without ambiguity, that in no case and under no circumstance should torture of any human being ever be used, whether it for national security or otherwise. And I think it's what makes this country great is that we can still talk about what it is that our values are and what constitutes our great country, that we, can, that we can talk about this openly and honestly as to what the effects are. So in taking the knives out, I think we should take all of them out and throw them away and land on the side of mercy. Thank you, Betty. Next up is Toby Schreier. He's a Seacoast native currently who is, as he puts it, layering in Dover. Makes me think of a man cave. But um, He says he is more at home in the woods than in the people crowds of Portsmouth, Portsmouth unless good beer is involved. 
He works in middle management to support his many avocations that include music, recording, visual arts, birding, meteorology, travel, and now apparently telling stories on the radio. His story tonight, Beyond the Mountains, is about dreams of alpine exploration that may have been built up to great heights, sorry, um, yet ultimately did not work out. His ultimate question that he asks is, what do we do with our dreams when they die and what can come from their ashes? Toby? So, endings. I have a hard time talking about endings in any real concrete fashion because how do, how do endings begin? How do beginnings end? And really, how do endings end? Can endings end? And this is where my mind goes when I'm staring off into space, either that or, you know, what am I going to have for lunch? <laughs> but ultimately, other questions that come with that, I think this goes back to music in a way and the music that we listen to as we grow into adults. Because how many people's ideas of romance were shaped by Sinatra? How many people's worldview were crushed in a way by the epic of The Wall? Me, uh, I had semisonic. Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. How horribly cliche. So my best friend and I would often sit in our old apartment that always smelled of curry from the convenience store two, to it, two floors down. Now this isn't the rich, earthy scent of curry, that exotic scent that makes you think of swirling silk saris hand-dyed in the sun, Think of centuried elephants with tusks capped in gold. No, this was a smell of weak old curry flavoring on chicken substitute that's been dropped behind a tired, greasy griddle that even the roaches wouldn't deign to touch. But this was home. We sat there plunking on my cheap acoustic guitar, and we dreamed of bigger things. We dreamed of mountains. We dreamed of Yosemite with El Capitan, holding back the sky like a dam, keeping the heavens from flooding our tiny earth. We dreamed of the Alps with the imposing profile of the Eiger, cutting into the Swiss sky like a crooked dagger drawn still bloody from the hearts of long-dead Rhaetian deities. We dreamed of Alaska, Glacier National Park, Denali, friends that would never come home that are still missing today. We didn't really dream of the Himalayas, though. Uh, probably too much curry. Anyway, between the plunk strums and half-tempo lurching forays through Metallica and Marcy Playground, jokes that I should really just learn based due to my lack of interest or skill at strumming, we plotted our expeditions. We settled on Alaska. My friend had been there before with class and had to depart early, defeated by a stomach bug. He had vowed his bloody vengeance, and I swore on my oath of fealty. We researched and we trained. We called it training, but really, I suppose we were just playing in the woods. I was in art school at the time, and one thing that the art department didn't believe in was classes on Fridays. I was also driving buses at the time, and I refused to drive or dispatch nights or weekends to avoid the uh, micromanagement of a man affectionately known as Shark Bison. So this left Friday mornings wide open. That being the case, my buddy and I would load our myriad climbing gear into the back of my blue. I am going on the record on public radio saying it is blue, not the purple it was accused of being. We would load the our gear into the back of my blue Toyota Tacoma pickup and drive at the crack of dawn down the dark and perilously winding 40 minutes of pothole farms, locally known in New Hampshire as Rhodes, out to Patuckaway, where we could hike, hike into the lower slab by the time the sun rose. We called it training for alpine starts, but really we just wanted the cliffs to ourselves so we didn't have to share it with the, uh, the dope-smoking, unwashed hippies. That so we got out there before they even crawled into their fair trade hand-woven hemp blankets. 
But it was really those hikes in and out along the well-worn and eroded access road that our dreams grew. What training we needed, what gear we should acquire, what bush pilots we should use. Turns out my buddy knew a guy. He could probably hook us up. Beyond Alaska, we dreamed of a business. Leading climbing trips for kids, a mobile school. All we needed was a van. We had the individual climbing kits for each student assembled in our minds. Lesson plans, locations, even what kind of vehicle we would need. You know, if we could mount climbing holds on the walls of that panel van to you know, give a demonstration before class started. You know, we invested so much of ourselves into these dreams, our hopes, our time, our money, and quite often our blood. Uh, every paycheck we'd add to our trove of clanking, heavy, life-saving gear that lets us get up these sheer slabs in some semblance of safety. We had more rope than a well-stocked BDSM club, and we sounded like medieval junk dealers as we hiked down that path with all the clanking. The main offender, I do have to say, was the number seven tricam, which resembled an ill-begotten love child of the medieval mace and a cowbell as it dangled cheerily from a bright Crayola yellow webbing. Looking back, it's all clear how the dream built up. The ending, however, is much mistier. Clouds obs obscured that summit slowly. It hurt more and more every time I climbed. I'd already had one wrist surgery at that time to help with chronic pain, and it was still getting worse. I could deal with pain to a certain degree, but it was hard to drive the stick shift on the Tacoma after a day out on the rocks. I think if I had to nail down one moment where the clouds came in and didn't clear, it'd be when my buddy was climbing and I was belaying and holding the other end of the rope to protect him if he fell. He ran into a trouble spot and adjusted. I got ready for a fall that thankfully never came. But in that motion of pulling on the rope to the correct angle, my wrist popped. Now when I say popped, I really say that as a euphemism. It's not the pop of relieving a knuckle that we torment our grandmothers with. It's not the machine gun crack of uncurling from a day's worth of desk vulturing. It's really more the pop of a weasel that's being crunched underneath the wheels of a blue Toyota Tacoma pickup. It's the searing violence of tension wire tendons snapping over dubiously frayed cartilage. It's noisy, hurts like the dickens, and more importantly, I lose most of my strength and fine motor control for the, in my hand for a few seconds. My wrist popped on the slabs that early morning. I told myself I could have held the rope if my friend fell. I don't think I ever fully believed it. During this time, my, fight, my friend was fighting his own demons. I was watching him go blind. Uh, the very guy that literally taught me the ropes was having a harder and harder time seeing the paths in, the setups. We didn't admit defeat out loud. We thought of Sir Edmund Hillary, Reinhold Messner, hard men and dauntlessly driven by dreams. We couldn't admit defeat, but we both knew it. Our trips to the slabs grew fewer and fewer. We, relinqu we relinquished our territory to the hippies once more. My friend and I even grew apart. Uh, I don't think e either of us could admit our defeat to the other at that point. So what happens to dreams when they die? Some dreams are forgotten. Some are drunk away. Some are locked in a box and shoved in the basement of the attic. For me, it turns out that despite their restrictions on selling non-tangibles, I sold mine on eBay. Now, selling these dreams was one of the hardest things I've done. This rack of gear I'd sunk quite a bit of money to over the time. Could I really sell it? Wouldn't that be the ultimate defeat, selling a dream? But that heaped pile in the corner just stared at me like a jilted lover. And Well, one day I dumped out my assemblage of metal doodads and webbing, started taking pictures, put it up on eBay in one huge lot. Who in their right mind would buy used safety gear from some schmuck they didn't know on the internet? And I started getting messages. Hey, could you ship to Chile? Uh, sure. I don't know how international shipping works, but sure. Let's put that as an option. Oh, hey, bidding war started between Chile and New Zealand. Now Spain's gotten in on, on the international incident. 
in the last minutes, and as an extra zero appeared to the left of the decimal point that I was really expecting, Pennsylvania snuck in and won the auction. The money came in, I shipped out the rack of gear, and I said selling the gear was hard. I really kind of lied. Packing it into two flat rate boxes was even harder. Piece by piece, the memories of plugging that gear into rocks as I and my friend climbed and dreamed were swathed in funereal shrouds of bubble wrap and shoved into their corrugated coffins. <laughs> then silence. Looking for some closure, I waited for that positive feedback from my buyer. Call it a sense of pride, call it OCD, but I wanted that five-star rating. Nothing. Weeks passed and nothing. I pondered what to do with the money. Which bills should I pay? What savings account should I put it into? I could at least take this failed corpse of a dream and be responsible with it and let that be it. A real solid ending. Then I got an email. I didn't recognize the name, but it started with a thank you. Thank you so much for the climbing rack. The boxes arrived just as we were packing up the van for a trip to Red River Gorge. I surprised my husband when we got there by letting him open the mysterious boxes. He finally had his own rack. Now I can stop grabbing mine. It was a wonderful trip, and the gear worked out wonderfully. I just wanted to say thank you. Huh. I just fueled somebody else's dream with my dead one. I knew then what I had to do. I bought a five-string bass, solid-state 1,000-watt amplifier, and a stack pair of 2x10 4x10 speaker cabinets. I followed another dream and turned it up to 11. Needless to say, my neighbors were thrilled. <laughs> I may have given up ascending the Eiger or traversing glaciers, but I could still dream. I could still dream of rock, metal, and jazz, too. I could dream of runs, dotted eights, and syncopation. I could dream delicately playing the changes, as well as grinding out crushing, distorted riffs. Dreams have this funny way of never really going away, never really dying, echoing off life's canyon walls in unexpected ways. Years later, I went to a base camp in Tennessee. Not bad for a first formal lesson. I jammed with world-class musicians while I was outskilled, out-talented, outclassed. Everybody was smiling, everybody was welcoming, everybody was sharing. Didn't matter worth, worth horse feathers. We were all there learning, playing, and dreaming. And wrapping it all up, whilst I was there, I met a flute-playing entomologist. Go figure. We hit it off well, and while exploring Nashville after the camp, we uh, kind of fell in love, and she changed her plans from camping for a week in the Smokies to follow me home to New Hampshire. This January, I joined her for a tracking class. We snowshoed up a ski slope, a ski slope to a mountaintop lodge where we stalked fox tracks through the alpine snow of Tolkenberg. Tolkenberg? I'd never heard of it. But it's in St. Gallen, just less than two hours north and east of her home in Zurich. As we left the quiet corner of the forest where our fox had curled up to take a nap through the early morning snow with his nose curled up under his tail, leaving prints in the snow of both, as we returned back to meet up with the rest of the group, we came out of the forest to an astonishing view. Hot air balloons soaring through crystalline blue skies over the eastern Alps of Switzerland. We were too far north and east to be anywhere near the Eiger. That wasn't a problem. I'd already let that dream go. Thank you. Oh, I hear more from you, Toby. That was great. And last but not least, we have Michael Lang. True Tales regular listeners will be familiar with Mike's unique voice and wit, as he has shared a number of stories from his life, in particular um, related to his work as a ropes course facilitator and wilderness guide with the True Tales audiences. He occupies himself now as a storyteller, musician, writer, and works through his small business, I don't know how to say it, Coyotes Inkwell, to educate and entertain audiences of all ages. This evening, Mike will entertain us with his story, Monsters in the Dark, a story about letting go of fears, whether real or imaginary. Mike? Mom? Dad? 
there's a monster under my bed. How many times have those words been uttered? Perhaps since the dawn of time, children have been waking their parents in the middle of the night and insisting that they search. Perhaps you're one of these children. Perhaps you're one of the countless parents who has had to perform this bedtime ritual, searching under the bed, in the depths of the closet, anywhere in the room where shadows might lurk. Is it our fear of the unknown that causes our imagination to see claws and fangs in the guise of lampshades and pillows? Or is it our desire for a little more attention? One last bedtime story? Another lullaby? Maybe one more hug? My older brother Eric and his wife Christy, they put a new spin on this tradition when they taught their little girl Madison how to scare the monsters away. Come to find out, the monsters under your bed are actually just as frightened of you as you are of them. All it takes is a certain waggle of the fingers and then oogly boogly. That's enough to send them scaring back into the corners. It may actually be the giggling that follows the oogly boogly that really frightens the monsters away. After all, can you really be afraid when you're busy laughing? What about those times when our fears aren't just our imagination? What about the times when our fears are more than monsters in the dark? I was 14 when a fairly routine blood test came back with a few very unroutine results. My parents were told they had to get me down to Boston Children's Hospital soon. Now. They were also told... Pack a bag for overnight, but don't tell them. We don't know what's going on. A few hours later, I was down at the hospital having an ultrasound. I wasn't afraid at the moment. I was too distracted by the cold goo that was being smeared all over my belly and the technician who was using her probe sensor kind of like a rolling pin over my internal organs. My parents, however, they were looking at the computer screen and wondering what these things were that kept turning up, that the technician kept marking off. It turned out there was something wrong with my kidneys. They were working at about 50% strength, and no one really knew why. They assumed it was genetic, probably related to my eye disorder. I was told that someday I might need a transplant. That word probably should have been frightening, transplant. But at that moment, a little voice in the back of my head laughed it off, <laughs> you'll be old. You'll be like 50 or 60 when that happens. <laughs> I was 14. When you're that age, 30 is old. It turned out that I was wrong. I was not 50 or 60, or even old. It was a little more than a decade later when I got the news. I had just graduated from the University of New Hampshire, had just finished working a season out in Minnesota as a wilderness guide. It was January of 2007. At my quarterly visit to my kidney specialist, that's when I got the news. Mike, you're going to need a transplant in the next couple of years. My doctor was talking about it, saying, we like to get these things all in order long before it's time. That way, when it comes time, it's not an emergency. My doctor then began to talk about kidney dialysis and what that might look like. I must admit, prior to that conversation, my knowledge of dialysis was limited to the movie Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It's the one where Captain Kirk and his crew go back in time to the 21st century to pick up some whales. But there's a scene that takes place in a hospital where Dr. McCoy is walking along the corridor and he comes upon this old woman lying on a gurney. She's moaning and groaning, What's wrong with you? 
kidney dialysis. <laughs> dialysis? What is this, the Dark Ages? He reaches into his bag and produces a pill that he gives to her, telling her, swallow this. If you need anything else, you call me. At the end of the scene, in the middle of a chase sequence, the woman's being wheeled down the corridor, all spry and lively, waving to everyone with a gaggle of doctors around her, all raving about how her kidneys are fully functional. Modern medicine has advanced in leaps and bounds over the past several decades, but we're still a long ways away from Star Trek. My doctor was talking about going to a clinic three times a week. She was talking about needles in my arm, my blood being pulled and pumped out of me into a machine that would clean it before sending it back to me. As she continued to talk, I could feel this cold clamminess washing over me. My breathing was becoming a little shallow and a little quick. My heart rate was increasing. Thanks to my training in emergency medicine, I knew exactly what was happening to me. I had this strange awareness. Ah, this is an autonomic nervous response. One of those things that we humans developed when we were still monkeys somewhere up in a tree. One of those things along with fight or flight. When all else fails, if I look dead, maybe, just maybe, the tiger will chase after a different monkey. I knew that as my doctor's voice was becoming fainter and further away, sounding like she was at the end of a long corridor or a tunnel, I knew that at any moment my blood pressure would drop and... I was suddenly sitting in a very comfortable chair, and there was a very refreshing glass of apple juice in my hand. Ha! Huh. That's what it feels like to faint. Good to know. My doctor smiled. Well, I guess we'll talk about that later. But she never had to. And to this day, I have no idea what dialysis actually feels like. Because the very next day, possibly the very next second, my mother volunteered to be my donor. After she and my oldest brother, Jeff, and my dad were all ruled out, my brother Eric volunteered. In November of that year, we were in surgery together. And I cannot remember ever feeling as frightened as I was as that day in January. The only moment that comes anywhere close to that was when I was lying on the operating table and the mask was descending down over my face. Is this real? Is this, is this really happening? And at that moment, a voice in the back of my head laughed. It's too late to change your mind now. They're already cutting Eric open. When I woke up in my curtained alcove of the recovery ward, my oldest brother Jeff and his wife Jamie were there. There were tubes running into me and tubes running out of me, some of them in places I had hoped never ever to have a tube. I don't remember much of those first conversations, but I do remember the message that they had from Eric. Tell Mike, I want it back. <laughs> I think that's the perfect way to summarize the week that we spent in the hospital together. Family and friends, close, and our own unique sense of humor. For after all, laughter is the best medicine of all. And the following week, at Thanksgiving dinner, there was plenty of laughter to go around, so much that Eric started oozing a little bit from underneath one of the sutures of his incision. But after a change of dressing and a change of bandage, he was fine. Just goes to show that like all medicines, laughter should only be taken in prescribed doses. But remember, the next time you find yourself staring down the monsters under your bed, the monsters in the back of your closet, or even the fears that are lurking somewhere in your head, don't be afraid to ask for a hug. One more lullaby or a bedtime story, and when all else fails, try an oogly boogly, because it just might make you laugh.
and laughter never fails to chase away the monsters in the dark. So thanks a lot. Hope you all enjoyed it. <laughs> That's tough to follow. Uh, we thank all of the wonderful storytellers for bringing things to life tonight. True Tales Radio will be back on July 28th with the theme, Family. Email us at truetales at wscafm.org for details. Uh, you also find info on facebook.com slash truetalesradio. July 28th is full, which is very positive here. We are accepting signups for August 25th, and the theme is Balancing Acts and Managing Roles. Uh, and also, by the way, while at our Facebook page, please like us and check out the rest of the 2015 themes. Uh, remember that Pat Spaulding and Amy Antonucci are offering storytelling workshops on the first Tuesday of each month from 7.30 to 9 p.m., recommencing in July. Um, and here at the Portsmouth Community Radio Station, 909 Islington Street, Suite 1, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You can have a chance to share a story off the air and receive feedback. These are free and open to the public. The next one is July 7. For more info, see, email patspaulding at gmail.com. Many thanks to our underwriters for tonight's program. Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is uh, curious to know, hey, what's your story? And from yours truly, because uh, I believe in the uh, unique value of having an independent radio or community radio station in the seacoast. Uh, if you believe community radio, storytelling, and the many other programs on Portsmouth Community Radio, contact us uh, to become an underwriter, truetales at wscafm.org. Further thanks to MC Kathy Maloney, <laughs> set manager and photographer Gene Gagney, from Promotional assistant and photographer Steve Caval, and producer John Lovering. <laughs> Portsmouth Community Radio is a 501c3 volunteer run, nonprofit organization that depends solely on the financial support of members and underwriters. Membership info is available at our website, PortsmouthCommunityRadio.org. Help keep our diverse programming alive and well here on your independent community radio station. Choose the opportunity to join the team. Until our next True Tales radio show, I am Jan Hansen, and on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening. I now turn it over to John Lovering for the final few minutes of audio theater. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white duck sail before?